Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. Father God, we thank you. Lord, that you make us who we are. And we thank you, Lord, that who we are depends on you, Lord, not on anyone else. And we thank you, Lord, that we didn't make you love us. And we can't make you stop loving us. We just come, Lord, and just receive your love tonight, Lord, and choose to live our lives, Lord, in the safety and splendor and glory of your love. Come and have your way in us through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, there's not going to be any PowerPoint tonight because my iPad doesn't want to work properly for some other reason. <laughs> but uh, the word is true whether you can project it or not. <laughs> so uh, we're going old school with like... Any of you know what this is? <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to I'm continue sharing from the life of Nehemiah. I'm doing a, um, I've been doing a series uh, entitled Under Construction uh, for a couple of weeks now, uh, brought about partially by the fact, well, to a large part by the fact that um, our hall where we have our morning services in Roosevelt High School the, burned down, and uh, we had to build it, and God sort of showed me that um, just like our building is under construction, we as individuals and we as, com- as a community are also under construction, perpetually under construction. Uh, and I'm so grateful to God that he started um, doing some construction, organizing for some construction to be done here in our uh, services, evening services in um, Santon too, you know, because it's such a nice visual aid. So now, now you guys don't have to feel left out. <laughs> um, but church should really be a place if we understand that we're all under construction, then church should really be a place where we can let our hair down and just be ourselves without having to make any pretenses or put our best foot forward or try and look better than we are because we're under construction. All of us are under construction. All of us are incomplete. All of us are in process. All of us are being built, being made into what God wants us to be. And no, none of us has, have arrived yet. And... Uh, we experience that about ourselves every day. We let ourselves down. We faced up with our own weaknesses, with our own, you know, wall, which, which is sort of halfway constructed. And we faced, especially, you know, those of us who are closest to one another, husband and wife, parents and children, etc., good friends. We, we even see, you know, where, where we, um, in each other's lives, where we're still under construction. Um, and, and that's normal. That, that's not strange. If you're under construction, if you're not perfect yet, if you're not completed yet, don't feel weird, don't feel out. You're one of us. <laughs> You'll fit in quite well over here in Shofar because we're all under construction. So I'm going to read for us from, um, from Nehemiah, just the last verse in chapter 1 and then into chapter 2, up to chapter 2, verse 10. And what I, one of the things I like about Nehemiah is that Nehemiah is a working man. He's not a priest, he's not a prophet, he's not a king, he has no official position. 
He's not a professional minister. He's a working man like most of you. Okay? Uh, he works hard. Um, and God has a calling for him in the world. In the kingdom of the world. But God also has a calling for him in, in, in the, the kingdom of God, which, which is the church. And both of them are his calling. It's not like the one is his calling and the other is not. Uh, and that's what we're going to look at uh, today. Um, in um, three times he talks about God and the king. And there's a bit of a tension there. You know, the king was Nehemiah's employer. Okay? But he, so he was working for the king, the king of Persia, but he was, also, he was also working for the God of heaven. And I know some of you who work in secular jobs, um, who have a calling in the secular world, you, you have, you're working for the king of Persia, but you're also working for the God of heaven, just like Nehemiah. And, 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 and you, you know that tension that there can sometimes be between the two. There's a bit of a tension there sometimes, and it's a bit difficult sometimes, or we find it a bit difficult to, to marry those two and to bring them to, together. And... Um, to actually recognize that both of those are our calling. It's not like our work in the church is our calling and our work in the world is not. We need to drop this artificial separation between the sacred and the secular, between heaven and earth, and between, um, to use the Nehemiah um, imagery, the city of Susa, which is the capital of Persia, and the city of Jerusalem, which is the city of God. Nehemiah didn't have any such... Uh, dichotomy, such a distinction. So, so let's read. I'm going to read from uh, chapter 1, verse 11. And it says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought to him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed with fire. And the king asked me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, let him, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the king sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take? And uh, when will you be back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they may provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so that he may give me timber to make beams for the gate of the citadel by the, tem uh, by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army of officers and cavalry with me. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. 
And Lord, we just thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that even though it was written thousands of years ago, it is still as relevant, Lord God, Lord, as it ever was. And we can learn so much from Nehemiah's life, Lord God, and, and that tension that he felt between working for the king of Persia and working for the God of heaven, Lord. We so often feel it as well, Lord, and th- thank you that we can learn wisdom from your word about that, and we pray that you instruct us, Lord Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I just want you to notice three times it talks. In, in, the, in the very first verse, Nehemiah is praying, and he says, Lord, in other words, he's addressing God, and then he asks for favor in the presence of this man who turns out to be the king of Persia. So he's praying to the God of heaven about the king of Persia. And then in verse 4 it says, Then I prayed to the God of heaven and answered the king. And I prayed to the God of heaven and answered the king. And then in verse 8 it says, Because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. And there's this, this tension between the two. Um, and I'm sure, like I said, some, some of you have felt it um, as well. So I just want to look at, you know, from this passage, what we can learn about uh, working for both God and the king, relating to God and the king, how to do that, and then draw some contrast between God and the king. So, so let's look at the first one. Um, we see, uh, we saw before that Nehemiah was um, working in the city of Susa, which was the capital of Persia, which represents the world. Uh, but he had a deep concern for the city of Jerusalem, which is the city of God. And I was saying that any calling starts with a concern. Concern is the seed from which calling is, 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 is born. So if you avoid concern, you avoid calling. How often do we avoid concern, right? Because no? we, we, we don't concern. is not comfortable. It's not convenient. Okay? So, but we make the mistake because in our attempt to avoid concern, we're actually avoiding our calling. Because the concerns that God brings to our heart are the seed of our calling. And then he prays about it, prays very intensely about it. And we looked at that before um, as well. Um, And he wanted to do something that he felt the God of heaven was laying on his heart. He heard the reports about the city of Jerusalem in ruins and in disrepair. And the people of Israel, God's people, um, vulnerable and ashamed. And he wanted to do something about it, but he... He was working for the king of Persia. He was a servant of the king of Persia. His time was not his own. He couldn't just up and leave. Uh, He had to stay with the king. He was cupbearer to the king. Um, So how do we manage this tension? How do we... Because most of you, like I said, have a double calling, a dual calling. You have a calling in the world and a calling in in the kingdom of God. You have a calling um, in the city of Susa and in the city of Jerusalem, if I can put it that way. You're working at the very same time for the God of heaven and for the king of Persia. Okay? And your, your work in the world is as much your calling as your work in the church. And, and that's very important to me. In other words, when you work from 8 or 9 to 5 or whatever, that is not you know, just what you do to make money so you can survive or so that you can, after hours, you know, fulfill your calling in the church. What you do with most of your waking hours is actually your calling. Think about it this way. Um, God says in one of the Psalms, I don't remember which one now, that he feeds all the beasts of the earth and all the people. Okay, how? Well, through the forests and through the farmers and all that kind of stuff. God works through people to love people. Okay, and when... 
When you're a teacher at a school, you are loving people by teaching them, by developing their heads, their hearts, and their hands into skills that they can use so they can fulfill God's calling upon their lives. If you are a lawyer, ooh, can a lawyer be a calling? <laughs> yes, I'm sure, I'm sure he can. What, what, what's the raw material that, that lawyers work with? They bring together the law, the constitution, the law of the country, and human relationships. And they make sure that those human relationships are in order. I mean, that's why you have a contract to sort of fix uh, human relationships and human commitments towards one another. Okay, that's why you have um, business deals or, or when you buy or sell property or whatever, um, you, you have, you know, contracts that lawyers set up. It's, to, it's, it's because we've fallen human beings, of course, that we need the law and the enforcement and the legal contracts for the relationships to, to work well. But in this fallen world, you need that. You need lawyers to, to make sure that, you know, relationships um, happen in order. Um, you, know, what, what, you know, farmers obviously use um, seed and soil and, 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 and um, you know, bring it together to produce products, food and products that are helpful and useful um, to sustain human life. Uh, if you're working in the creative arts, say you're an actress, what do you, what, what's the raw materials that you use? And what do you do with it? Well, you use human experience and you put it together into stories that inspire and instruct. And ultimately point to the ultimate story. The story of God, His story, His story. So, all of that is your calling. So you, you need to figure out and understand the work that you're doing from nine to five as part of your calling. Now, Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. Now, a cupbearer tasted all of the king's food, not just the, the cup. So he took the cup, obviously, when the wine was brought, and he tasted that because one of the favorite ways, obviously, you know, if someone wanted to kill the king is that they try and poison him, you know. So he, he tasted the cup, but he tasted all the food, actually. And because he tasted all the food, he was put in charge and given responsibility for the whole food chain. So for sourcing the food, you know, the beef and the, 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 the pork and the lamb and whatever, to preparing it, he had to appoint all the chefs and all the guys working with the food. And then he had to taste all the food, do, do quality control on all the food. Because, I mean, you can't, you know, put a guy's at life at risk, you know. <laughs> You've got to taste the food, but you don't give him any control over the process which produces the food. So he was actually, you know, cupbearer is a bit misleading, you know. It, it makes it sound like he was just attending all the parties and just sipping, you know, from the king's cup, you know. But, but he actually had an important job. He was managing the whole food production process. Okay, so it was, a, it, was a, it was a big job, number one. Secondly, he was a confidant of the king. The king had to trust him because the king was literally trusting his life to him. If he deceived the king, the king could die. Um, and was giving a lot of authority. I, I don't have, if, if I had my, um, my slides up, I, I would have shown you uh, just a verse from, from the book of Tobit, which is a, a book from the Apocrypha. Um, so it's not inspired, it's not part of the Bible. But it's interesting, historically, there's this guy, I can't, um, Ahikar or something is his name. Uh, and he was brought back. He was a cupbearer for King Sennacherib. And he was brought back and made... Cupbearer, chief cupbearer by his son. And it says not only that he was made the chief cupbearer, but that he wore the signet ring. 
Now, the signet ring was the ring which had the insignia of the king with which he signed all documents. So this guy, the chief cupbearer, wore the signet ring, and, and then when the king wanted a document signed, you know, into law or whatever, he'd drip wax on it and say, you know, cupbearer, come, you know. That's how much he was struggling. And then it says he was given, he had administration of all the finances of the kingdom. So you can see these, these guys were like highly respected, you know, guys who um, the king had confidence in um, and gave a lot of authority to. And the king often, because he had to spend so much time with the king, you know, wherever the king was, when the king had some, to eat something, the cup bearer would first taste it or, or, or sip at it and, and, and make sure it's not poisoned. So he was around the king the whole time. So he was, a, he was expected to be a wise counselor to the king as well. Now, here's the thing. Clearly from that, we can learn that Nehemiah was a competent administrator. He administrated at least the food you know, production process and maybe even more. As the, as the chief cupbearer to the king. Secondly, he had, obviously, um, great integrity of character. He obviously had great integrity of character. He obviously had a track record of impeccable integrity so that the king said, this guy I can trust. This guy I can allow close to me. This guy I can entrust my life to. He won't let me down. Um, more than that, he was a wise counselor. And the king wanted him to hang around with him in his presence and would often ask his advice uh, in things. Now think about this. Nehemiah was a Jew. And the king knew he was a Jew. When Nehemiah started talking about you know, going back to the city of Judah to where his ancestors were buried, the king didn't say, Oh my goodness, you're a Jew. Why didn't anyone tell me this? How on earth did we appoint a Jew as cupbearer? <laughs> The king knew he was a Jew. So he was a foreigner, and the king knew he was a foreigner. And despite that fact, the king entrusted his life to this guy. What does that tell you about his character, his competence? What does that tell you about the kind of track record he built up working for the king of Persia in the world? Would your boss entrust his life to you? Does he trust you that much? Can he trust you that much? Nehemiah sets quite a high standard, doesn't he? Okay. Let me ask it a bit differently. Would you be willing to risk your life like Nehemiah for your boss? That's the kind of sacrificial service that God expects us to render to everyone around us including the people we work with and for. Because that too is our calling, to represent God in the workplace. So God also, we see later in the book, and, and we'll get to that as, as the weeks go on, uses the competence and character that Nehemiah built up while working for the king of Persia, while working in, in the city of Susa, to go and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. So that was also a part of his training ground uh, in order to uh, go and rebuild Jerusalem. Um, so like I said, both of these were part of, of Nehemiah's calling. Now, yeah, Nehemiah, because of his competence and because of his character, he got to a place of great influence in the world, in the kingdom of Persia. And he used that influence to build the kingdom of God. And to benefit the people of God. 
And it wasn't that easy. Because we, we know from Ezra chapter 4 that probably King Artaxerxes, the king that he's approaching and that he's praying for favor with, was the very king who gave the commands that left Israel vulnerable and that probably led to Israel's walls being broken down and, and, and gates burnt with fire. And then there's more. I mean, we know from experience. I mean, we, we see now, you know, Nehemiah's story turns out relatively positive, but we know from experience that many people in the world will resist what God does in the kingdom and actually make it difficult. And Jesus says so. He says, you know, if the world hated me, it will hate you too. Okay? And so, how do you relate the two to one another? But are you willing to, at cost, great cost to yourself, use the influence, be faithful firstly in the world and gain influence, but then use that influence to build the kingdom? Nehemiah was. I mean, being cupbearer was a noble calling, a very high job. It was an influential position, as we saw. And it, was a very, it led to a very comfortable life. He attended all the parties that the king attended. Okay? He rubbed shoulders with the who's who of Persia. And he was willing to sacrifice all of that to build the kingdom of God. Are you? So Nehemiah was sacrificial in both his callings. In his calling in to, uh, working for the king of Persia and in his calling working for the God of heaven. Okay, so relating to God and the king, Nehemiah prayed to the God of heaven and then answered the king. I, lo- I love that, that what verse 4 and 5 says. So, I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king of Persia. And it shows us a, a bit about how he related to these two authority figures uh, uh, in his life. Uh, and I think Nehemiah does very well there. And I just want to talk a little bit about prayer and planning. And I've said something about it before in, in, a, in a previous session, but I, I just want to revisit the subject a bit. Um, so often we see it, we, we, we think that, that prayer and planning are in uh, opposition to one another, but they're not. If you think about it, Nehemiah had to do both prayer and planning. Okay, firstly, he prays for favor. It says there, um, give me, give your servant success today and grant him favor with in the presence of this man who was the king of Persia. And it's, it's quite funny to me. A lot of um, your more skeptical commentators, they read that, and, and it, it happened in, in the year of, of Kislev. And then four or five months later, in the month of Nisan, there's this conversation between Nehemiah and the king. And they, and they say, well, you know, the, whoever edited this got it wrong, you know, and messed up their data, and, and, and there's a bit of an internal contradiction there. And, it, you know, whenever guys say that, I have to laugh because... God's word is always smarter than we are. And, 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 they, all, and, and they missed the point, the very point of this, of this passage. Because the point was that that prayer, give me favor today with this man, was the prayer that Nehemiah prayed daily for four to five months, waiting for the opportunity to bring his request before the king. Okay? And then... What I love is that when the opportunity does come, when he does find favor, when God does open a door for the subject to come up, it's not because Nehemiah was strong or because God sent an angel to the king. It's because Nehemiah, in a moment of weakness, let his guard down and let the sadness show on his face, which was legally 
not permissible. According to the law of Persia, you could be killed for showing sadness in the, in the presence of the king. That's why Nehemiah was so afraid. He said, I was terribly afraid. Because the understanding was, the king is such an amazing guy. You know? No one can ever be sad in his presence. You know? Just being around him sort of lifts up your spirits and makes, a happy, makes you happy and puts a smile on your face. And to be sad in the presence of a king would have been considered a great insult to the king. Because he's not great enough to make you happy. Okay? And you could literally be killed for it. Um, you know, a typical example of a king who sort of lost patience with, with his cupbearer is in the Joseph story in, in, in um, Genesis chapter 40. And the, remember the cupbearer and the baker ended up with Joseph in prison? Eventually the cupbearer got restored and, and he actually counseled you know, the king about Joseph and told him about Joseph um, who could um, interpret his, his dream. Uh, but he ended up in prison, and, and it might have been for not smiling in the presence of the king enough. You know, who knows? <laughs> um, but I love this, that God answers Nehemiah's prayer for favor with the king by allowing Nehemiah a moment of weakness in which he shows sadness, and then God uses that to open up the conversation and to open the door for him to go and rebuild Jerusalem. How do you like that? That God can even use your weaknesses and your quote-unquote mistakes to give you the favor that you prayed for. And now God can answer your prayers in other ways, and He does. But isn't it true that very often God makes us the answer to our own prayers? Like He does here with Nehemiah, even though it's in a surprising way, you know, through His weakness and not through His strength. Um, then also notice that just before Nehemiah answers, when the king asked him, you know, say, this, is, this can be nothing but sadness of art, you know, what's going on? Nehemiah, it says, I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. And I love the way we can really learn from Nehemiah in, in his, just in his prayer life. The previous chapter records a long prayer of Nehemiah, which he clearly prayed daily, regularly, okay? So Nehemiah, Nehemiah prayed long prayers, but he also prayed short prayers. He prayed long prayers in the inner room, but when he was in front of the king and there was, the action was happening, he prayed short prayers. The king didn't even know about it. But under his breath, quietly, Nehemiah prayed that prayer. Do you pray long prayers and short prayers? Do you even pray about your work and your boss? God wants us to. That's part of your calling. God wants to be there. Why? In the end, Nehemiah tells us, he says, Because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. God's grace leads to granted requests from the king. It's God's gracious hand that leads to the king's request being granted. In other words, God wants to work in your workplace. God is the God who influences the influencers. That's, <laughs> that's quite powerful. <laughs> Turn to your neighbor and tell them God influences the influencers. So, so why, don't, why don't you pray for the influences in your life? Because God wants to influence them. God wants to influence the influences. And, and there was this obstacle of, you know, he's, he's indebted to the king. He's, he's working for the king. His time is not his own. He can't go and rebuild Jerusalem. The concern that he believes God has laid on his heart, and that is in line with God's will, but he prays about it. And here's the, here's the thing. Even though what God has called you to do seems impossible if 
You pray, God will make a way for you to obey. See, I'm a poet and I don't even know it. Okay? If you pray, God will make a way for you to obey. Because sometimes there are obstacles to your obedience. And sometimes your, what's happening in your workplace is an obstacle to your obedience. Let me just mention a, a very silly everyday example, you know. Some of you, your, your, I mean, any business and, and most bosses will demand their pound of flesh. In fact, they'll demand a bit more than they're actually necessarily entitled to. And if, you, if they can push you to work longer hours for less pay, many bosses in the world will do that. Let's be honest about that. That's a reality. In Joburg, we know this, right? And so now you're in a situation where you have to, to work overtime every day and you can't go to small group. What do you do? Do you say, oh, you know, I've got to work, you know. Or do you, like Nehemiah, pray about this obstacle and say, and then go to your boss and say, you know, you know uh, ma'am, that I'm really committed to this company. I want this company to thrive and work. I, I do more than my bit. I, I work overtime and I expect nothing in return. But on Wednesdays, I have a previous commitment. I have a commitment to small group. And on Wednesdays, I cannot work overtime. And trust God that he'll give you the favor that she'll say to you, yes, okay, fine. It's just a small example. But it's in line with what Nehemiah does. Um, so what, what is planning? I've, I've discovered that planning is, in, is um, mental time travel. Right? That's what it is. Yeah, it's, it's really that simple, you know. And we see the product of Nehemiah's planning in this passage. You see, we want to play, you know, be super spiritual sometimes and, 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 and play planning and prayer off against each other and think that they're opposed to one another, but when they're actually not at all, okay? Look at Nehemiah's situation. What would have happened if he hadn't prayed and what would have happened if he hadn't planned, okay? If he hadn't prayed, he probably never would have had the opportunity for the issue to be raised and for him to get favor and, 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 and even ask the king for the opportunity to go and rebuild Jerusalem. But if he had prayed but not planned, when God did open the door, he wouldn't have known what to say. Look at his answer. You know, he says, when the king asked, what do you want? You know, he says, I pray to the God of heaven, I'll answer the king. But he was ready to answer the king. He'd already planned. He'd already time-traveled in his mind to Jerusalem. Because he'd never been to Jerusalem. He was born in Persia, born and bred in Persia. He only heard the reports of Jerusalem. So imagine, how did Jerusalem look? Okay? Broken walls, they said, his brother Hanani, we read in the previous chapter, said, broken walls, um, gates burned with fire, vulnerable. Broken down, not protected, not secure. So he imagines, okay, I know how city walls look because Susa also has a city wall and the other cities of Persia also have city walls. How do you build a city wall? What, I'm, what am I going to need? You know, how am I going to get there? Where is it? It's, it's quite far. You know, it's probably checked on a, on a map, you know, from, from the city of Susa to, to Jerusalem a few hundred miles um, through dangerous country. You know, maybe I'm going to need an escort. So, so he thinks, okay, how am I going to get there? What am I going to need? I'm going to need timber. He even researched the name of the, 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 the official, the, the head of the royal park, Asaph. And, and so when, when the time comes, and the king asks, what do you want? He says, please send me the who to do what? To rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And then the king asks the when question. Okay? When are you going to go and when are you going to be back? And, and that, I think that's quite telling, right? 
I want you to come back. You're such a good employee. I want you to come back. I'm not sending you away permanently. I'm going to sending you to go and rebuild Jerusalem, but then I want you to come back. Because I actually, I actually think you're a really great employee, and I want you here. <laughs> okay? Uh, and then, he, you know, the, the how question. Okay? He asked for certain resources. Timber, escort, etc. <clears throat> so, he time-traveled in his mind and said, okay, this is, these are the things I'm going to need. And, and he's done his research. He's done his planning. He's done his due diligence. And that's why he could actually give the king an intelligent answer. And, and we as Christians, you know, sometimes we have this idea, you know, that you know, heaven and earth are so divided, you know, that they have nothing to do with one another. That's not a Christian worldview. That's not Nehemiah's worldview. In Nehemiah's worldview, there was no conflict between interacting with the God of heaven and the king of Persia in the same sentence, in the same breath. In Nehemiah's worldview, there was no conflict between prayer to God and planning to execute a certain uh, project whatsoever. And they shouldn't be in ours either. In fact, our, our pl- planning and prayer go together very well. And we as Christians should be diligent in both. You know, sometimes we plan a lot and we don't pray. And then when we do approach the king, you know, we don't get a positive answer. We don't get favor like Nehemiah and we wonder why. You know, why is the king so hard-hearted? Remember, he prayed for four to five months daily asking for favor before it actually came. And he went in on God's timing because he prayed. Okay. Then... In closing, the contrast between God and the king. Hmm. As human beings, we were made to follow. And we all long for a king. But we long for a king not only who shares our concerns for what is important, but is actually more concerned about the things that we are concerned about. See, Nehemiah had to go to the king and share his concern and hope the king would share his concern. But what if there was a king who actually had a greater concern than Nehemiah about what was important and approached Nehemiah with a concern rather than the other way around? We all long for a king who can be ourselves around. See, Nehemiah couldn't even laugh. He wasn't even allowed to to, to be sad around the king because around the king you must act in a certain way. But what if there was a king you can actually be yourself around? Be sad when you're sad. Happy when you're happy. Cry when you're struggling. We all long for such a king. What what if there was a king that you didn't have to pray for favor with, but you knew you had his favor? What if there was a king that you didn't have to pray for, but who actually prayed for you? Huh? Don't we all long for a king like that? Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. In other words, every time he did his job, he he risked his life for the king. What if there was a king that was your cupbearer? That risked his life, or maybe even gave his life for you. Nehemiah says to the king, blessing the king, and he says, May the king live forever. If there was such a king that your heart longed for, wouldn't you want him to live forever? 
I'm, I'm sure all of you know by now where I'm going with this. Let me read you Matthew 26. Verse 39. Going a little further, he, Jesus, fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not what I, as I will, but as you will. You see, we have a king who was faced with a cup that was worse than poison. It was a cup filled with the wrath of Almighty God that we were supposed to drink to the dregs. And that cup was so scary. I mean, Jesus was not a timid guy. He was not a coward. He was not faint-hearted. But that cup was so dreadful that it caused Jesus to sweat, to, you know, caused his sweat to become like blood. It caused him to say, Lord, if it's at all possible, that's how bad that cup was. And yet he said, not my will, but your will be done. And if it's your will, Father, I will drink what they deserve. I'll drink your wrath on their behalf. I'll drink the cup that will definitely kill them. Not only kill them, destroy them, obliterate them. I'll drink that cup on their behalf. But he doesn't stop them. In Hebrews 7, verse 25, it says the following. Therefore he, Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He lives forever. May the king live forever. <laughs> he lives forever to intercede, to pray for his people. And that's why he can save us to the uttermost. And even though, here's, here's the irony, even though Nehemiah set such an incredibly high standard, risking his life in the service to the king of Persia, you know, the king sends him on a dangerous mission to go and rebuild Jerusalem. Jesus far surpasses all of that, you know. The sacrifice he does, he doesn't only risk his life for us, he gives his life for us. As king, he doesn't send us on a dangerous mission. He comes himself on the dangerous mission to save us. That's the kind of king we serve. That's the kind of king who is daily praying for us. Daily praying for us. Daily interceding for us. Daily asking the Father that our salvation will be complete and that we would be saved to the uttermost. You think the Father is going to answer Jesus' prayers? Why would he not? And if you serve such a king, such an inspirational, heroic king, doesn't it, want to make you, doesn't it make you want to be like him? Sacrifice like him? Serve like him? Pray like him? Be like him? That's our king. Our king has become our cupbearer. Not only does he drink the cup of the wrath of Almighty God to the dregs. But he takes a new cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of your sins and for your eternal life. 
drink it as often as you do in remembrance of me. Shall we do that? Can the ushers hand out the communion? And think about this. If, if our king treats us like this, even before we believe in him, even before we serve him, even before we love him, in fact, the Bible says, while we are still his enemies, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If our king treats us like that, while we were yet unbelievers, should we not treat our colleagues, the people we work with and the people we work for, like that as well, like we have been treated? Sacrificially. Hmm? I think that's, that's, why Jesus, that's part of why Jesus did it, to set us that example, to inspire us to do the same. And so that we will know, no matter what the king of Persia does to us, whether he treats us with favor or not, the king of heaven has favor on us. No matter what the king of Persia thinks of us, the king of heaven loves us. cares so much about us that he gives his life for us. Let's stand. You know, it, it, it makes a difference when, when someone does something for us, when someone sacrifices for us. It makes a difference who that person is, right? I mean, um, imagine, you know, just a close friend, you know, washing your feet or versus, you know, you know, someone that you consider a hero, you know, a sports hero or a just whatever hero, someone you l really look up to, you know, washing your feet. What's the, what will be the difference? How, how, will it make, how will it feel differently to you? You know, it's, it's one thing if a friend dies for you. I was reading in the newspaper uh, this tragedy um, at the school where that walkway fell and apparently a, a, a guy and a girl were walking, I think they were dating as well, they were um, boyfriend and girlfriend, and when the thing fell, the boy, you know, pushed the girl out of the way, pushed his girlfriend out of the way, and the, the concrete f f fell on him, and he basically saved her life and, and lost his. Um, and I'm sure it touched her heart. How much more if the king of heaven pushes you out of the way and takes the concrete block, block of judgment falling on him? How much more? Does that touch your heart? I think it ought to touch our hearts. And I think it ought to inspire us to be willing to sacrifice like he sacrificed. We're so scared of sacrifice as modern people. This represents sacrifice. He sacrificed for us because he loved us that much. Jesus, we thank you for your broken body, which was broken for us so that we can be restored, be healed, and be whole. We receive your love. Let's eat together. Before we drink the cup, I just want you, as your eyes are closed, you know, we all, we all work for someone or different people, and we all do long for a king like Jesus. If you've never surrendered your life to him, never acknowledged him as king of your life, 
you are missing out on the greatest king of all. He shed his blood so that you can be washed, washed as white as snow. Don't you want to serve a king like that? If you have not yet committed your life to him, or if your commitment has been shallow, I want you to take this opportunity as you drink this cup to say, Lord, even as I receive your forgiveness, I surrender my life to you. Even as you sacrificed for me, I want to sacrifice my life to you. Even as you didn't hold back on the cross, I don't want to hold back anymore. And as you drink this cup, recommit commit or recommit your life to him and say, Jesus, you are my king. Let's drink together. I'm not going to ask you to come forward, but I'm, I'm going to ask if you, if you, like Nehemiah, work for both the God of heaven and the king of Persia, and you sometimes find it difficult, you sometimes find a bit of a tension there that you struggle to, to balance, and you want just God's grace and God's wisdom to deal with that situation, just, just put up your hand. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm going to pray for you just right there where you are. God, you see these hands, Lord God. We, we often struggle, Lord God, with this tension between serving you and serving the world. Lord, and we want to start by acknowledging that both of those are our calling. Our nine to five is our calling. And what we do in church, the ministry, and whatever we do is also our calling. And we ask you for grace to bring those two callings together, to be faithful to you, in both spheres, Lord. In fact, not to see them as separate at all in Jesus' name, Lord. We pray for wisdom, Lord, to know, like Nehemiah did, how to both pray to the God of heaven and answer the king of Persia. Please give us that wisdom. Please give us that grace. Please make us faithful witnesses in the world. Please help us to have your character, Jesus, so that... We are so trustworthy that people are willing to entrust their lives to us. Lord, we're not there yet. We're so far from that. But we want to get there, and we pray that you'll help us. Lord, I pray just your blessing upon every person here, Lord. And I pray, Lord, especially a blessing for work, a blessing for representing, for being an ambassador of Jesus Christ in the workplace. And... We also, I also ask you, Lord, for favor with the King, for every single person here in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks. The Lord bless you. Go out and, and trust, trust God. Just go and try this week of praying for your work, like Nehemiah did, and see what happens. The Lord bless you. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.